Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here, thank you. For joining us, vetgurus.com, episode 243, Friday, May the 27th, 2022. And Mark is here with me somewhere there in the background. Hello, Mark. What is going on with that music, Brendan? Brendan? It's going and going and going. I'm letting it run out today. I'm letting it do its <laughs> full thing. We're, we're, we paid for it, so we're <laughs> I'm using up every single second. There, there we, we go. go. <laughs> stopped. Hopefully I don't hit it again so we get another 30 seconds of it. Yes, welcome to everybody. And don't forget to visit our website, vetgurus at gmail.com is the email address and vetgurus.com is the website to go to. Mark, I see that our merchandise, our Etsy site, go to Etsy, E-T-S-Y, dot com and search for Vet Gurus, all one word, and you will see our store there. There is a new item in our store, Mark, and that is the Vet Gurus black or blue bucket hat, Mark. Um, The old bucket hats are uh, a trendy thing these days, and not only... Does it keep your head safe and away from the sun and away from the rain, Mark? It has VetGuru's logo on it. And if you buy one of these, you'll be the coolest dude in town, where, regardless of what town you are in, Mark. I'm thinking and of placing a new order myself. And, and I want when we were together recently, Brendan, I got to see your, your VetGuru's beanie. And um, and I definitely need one of those to keep my head warm. Yeah, it's a, it's I like that beanie, and it, I think it's sixty percent recycled plastic or something in it. That beanie in there as well. So yeah, have a browse. Uh, go to the Vet Gurus store on Etsy, or go to vetgurus.com and follow the link there. And every little bit helps. Um, both a little bit of marketing, um, so you'll feel good. Um, also supporting us by a, a small percentage of each product goes towards our production costs, so that would be fantastic. So Vet Guru's bucket hat, get it. Um, be the one who gets the cool bucket hat. Um, it's practical, it's comfort, it's fashion, it's it's everything at once there, Mark. So um, I think I might order one myself as well and Perhaps I should wear it over the beanie. How's that for, you know, oh, um, double sticking bunger. up to the man? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So um, that's the chit-chat and that's our little promo there, Mark. And also with a big thank you to our sponsors and we might chat about one of our sponsors with, a, with sort of the main topic and today, but also our Patreon supporters, uh, and we have a, a few Patreon supporters. Again, you can go to our website and support us every month. Give us a dollar or two or three or more, and it helps, you know, almost 250 episodes, and, you know, you're getting free continuing education, and how about sending a little dollar or two back to us to help us keep going for the next 250 
So there's the plug, Mark. Um, yes, it was good to catch up with you. You did a bit of a, a flying visit to my hometown of Melbourne and we did a bit of a wander around the CBD, the Central Business District, and also a, a few of the little sites there. I, I think you enjoyed yourself, did you? I, I enjoyed myself immensely and I, I wanted to um, to thank you for – because I've walked past the National Gallery of Victoria in Federation Square a number of times and, and regularly said oh I better check that out at some point but your um, motivation got me in there and and we wandered through a number of the galleries and um, and we saw the the current special exhibit and I was pumped I was really pumped it was exciting I recommend that place for anyone it was excellent and that yeah that sh- exhibition that's currently there the which will only be there for a few more months was a bit different, wasn't it, Mark? It was huge resin skulls, human skulls, and they were massive, weren't they? They were probably, what, five foot high and, and five foot wide, and they had a whole lot of them in a room, and they were all piled up on top of each other. It was it was quite a sight, wasn't it? <laughs> it was impressive. It was definitely, um, uh, um, yeah, did all the things that art is supposed to do, make you feel, make you think. Um, I really enjoyed the bit I enjoyed most about it was they'd obviously use like a, you know, we saw how they made them, but they worked hard to make them all just slightly different, some with teeth, some without, some with decaying teeth and just different shapes to the eye sockets and nose. So it it, it had a bit of authenticity about it. But, yeah, it was an awesome ex- exhibit, an awesome um, uh, thing to go and visit. So shout out. Say th- I'm saying thanks for making me do it, Brendan. Good. It's good to have a bit of culture with a K there, Mark. So, <laughs> um, there we go. So I think, uh, uh, well, I'll jump into that. I know we've got down on our little agenda that you're first, but I'm going to I'm gonna snaffle this. Gazump me. First little news item, and it's about Rainbow the Fox, and I found this fascinating. <laughs> it's a fox that's in New South Wales, and they're feral species here in Australia, and it's evading capture mark and it's also sticking its little <laughs> fingers up to the cameras it's been caught on camera a handful of times and they they've nicknamed it rambo obviously um because of, they just cannot catch this fox um for three years mark um wildlife conservationists have been in pursuit of the elusive fox Oh, and they've been trying, even with sniffer dogs, to try and um, snaffle him because I think he's the the only the only one left in this particular area, and it's a pretty big area, isn't it? There we go. He's one animal in a very very big paddock, according to Mister Sparrow. Seven hundred hectares has been fenced in. Yes, yes, and he's the only fox, as far as I know, that's left there. That's right. And uh, they estimate there could be ten to fifteen thousand hidey holes that he's <laughs> living in. So they they've been trying to trap him and can you know grab him for the, for for three years, and they're still not getting there. And yeah, the couple of the photos there, uh, it, it it he does look like he's sticking it to the man, doesn't he? He's, he does he's, look he's like saying, he's going. You know, you ain't you know, getting me. I can see this is a camera there, and yeah, you've got no <laughs> chance. You've got no chance. Um, so there we go. So it can be tricky, can't it? Um, tactics to trick, um, you know, trying to get a wild dog into traps, and uh, they're they're struggling there. So whether they will catch Rambo or not, Mark remains to be seen. But um, I think 
They'll get him one way or the other. Maybe perhaps he'll die of old age before they manage to capture him. So that's my story. So it's a bit of a just a, an interest story there, Mark, about um, trying to spend in a bit of money and time trying to catch one feral species left in a fenced-off area of. I know 5, we've talked 000. about we've talked about uh, Rambo before, and I think yes. While I don't want to, you know, I'd prefer there was no. Feral animals damaging our environment. I have developed a little bit of a, um, you know, affection for Rambo sticking it to the man. And um, and so we'll follow his story. If he po- pokes his um, little black foxy nose up to a camera again and we can get a shot, we'll mention it again on, on, um, on the Vet Gurus podcast. But I wanted to talk about another conservation area, one that you're familiar with, Brendan. Um, a farmer has had a, um, a wonderful piece of property in the Yarra Ranges, um, uh, 175 hectares, um, and uh, it, it's uh, um, uh, Yelongbo? Yelongbo. Yes, that's it. Um, a beautiful bit of uh, the Yarra Ranges with those beautiful gums. And it's the home of, um, of Victoria's rarest bird, the helmeted honeyeater, as well as a number of other endangered species, including uh, lead beater's possum. And, um, and yeah, the sale uh, has gone through to another one of the um, uh, not-for-profit co- uh, private conservation um, uh, what are what, charities? They're not. They're not. I don't. Wouldn't call them charities, but they're non-government NGO organisations who um, who acquire properties, um, fence them, as is the case in the Pilliga, uh, do other things to maintain them. And it's sort of good that the Logan family has been able to sell the property. I know they didn't maybe sell it at the price they wanted. And um, your government down in there, Victoria, has thrown in some money to make it a sweeter sale. And now the land has gone to the Yellingbow Nature Conservation uh, Trust and they've created a reserve with its swampy woodlands, one of the most important habitats for lowland leadbeater's possum and helmeted honeyeaters. So it's excellent um, that that... Uh, that um, property is going into hands that will look after it for uh, wildlife. Another good story, Brendan. Are you with me? Have I dropped off? Have we lost connection? No, we have not lost connection. We We have lost the mute button, which (laughs) has gone off again. Um, Now it's, well, it's off now I'm speaking. Yes, I've been to Yelling Bad several times and I've been fortunate enough to deal with and see up close those helmeted honey eaters um, when they were well below 50 left on this earth, Mark. I would love um, to have seen it. I've seen the – there's a – Melbourne Zoo has a a population you can see in their display, and I've seen those guys, but I would love to see them in the wild. Yes. So, yeah, it is good news and great to see that this farmer has decided or the family have decided to donate or sell the hectares to the conservation group. So that's fantastic. A good news story. Great. So with that, we can jump into a good news topic, Mark. I think our topic this week is what's another one? You, you've been pushing them out lately, haven't you? Another one suggested by you, and that's foods for unusual pet practice so emergency foods i think is what we're going to get stuck into so what sort of foods should you have in stock 
an exotic or unusual pet practice for in-house use for those patients. And we'll limit it to, to exactly that, and we won't talk about this week of the foods that we'd recommend for clients to take home or purchase for feeding That's their right. animals long term yes so do and, you want I, to- and i would i would divide it even further there's three points i would quickly make at the beginning before we go into more detail yes. the first one is um ask the owners to bring some food in um, with the animals when they come into hospital because the food there we're familiar with, I know you talk about the little lunchbox for the rabbits. Yes. Um, and the food they're familiar with, the odours even from the containers, they can be enough just to trigger the familiarity and, and uh, the first step for the animals to have a go. But when they're sick, maybe that's not even enough. And so there are maintenance foods for uh, animals that are in hospital maybe for other reasons, um, and uh, they probably are just what people would routinely expect. And then there's a number of, um, uh, well, what would we call them, critical care foods for different species um, that um, probably have to be... Uh, um, Gavaged, um, tube fed. The animals are unlikely to take them routinely when they're sick, um, but they provide probably more energy and nutrients um, than required for maintenance, uh, which is just right for them to heal from a major illness. So, um, so what for, when we narrow it down, Brendan, we would normally, I suppose, we're going to talk about small mammals birds and reptiles so um when you have small mammals in which what sort of um what sort of foods do you have in hospital for the rabbits that and guinea pigs that come in well before i talk about that i think you've made an <laughs> excellent point about the snack pack and yeah. advising clients to bring in a bit of lunch a bit of food for their pet when they drop in and them off especially for those day surgery procedures because not only do does it avoid you having to feed the animal? Um, and secondly, it means that they're more likely to eat after that minor procedure or surgery or whatever you end up having the animal in for because it's eating its normal food that's been fed at home. You also learn oh, yes. that the clients sometimes lie. <laughs> and, <laughs> I know this will the, come as a shock to all yes, our listeners. And that they, you tell them to bring in their normal food, for instance, a rabbit, the hay and veggies diet or whatever, and, 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 and good quality pellets, for instance, and they bring their snack pack in. And <laughs> it's unbelievable what some, some bits and pieces and all that, you know, bananas and strawberries and lots of fruit and, and all sorts of dried bits of sugary treats etc so um yes despite what we they say in their initial form that they fill in when they come to our clinic it's amazing and i must admit it is a minority of clients that do this but um it can be quite revealing can't it mark so it's another additional reason why we recommend doing that so what do we recommend or what do we use in-house for these um, animals and and our mantra is that no Animal goes home without food in its gut. Um, so a good mantra. Whether it's a there for a day procedure or whether it's there for obviously several days or more, or whether it's in the freezer at the back, um, it still has food in its gut. <laughs> <laughs> so Oxbow Critical Care, and and it's it's a bit and, and bit of a shout out to one of our sponsors. So that's um, that's. Um, Full, dis- full yeah. disclosure, full disclosure here, but we, I've certainly been using it well before 
they became a bit of one of our sponsors there, Mark. So critical care is certainly used by the bucket load at our practice. That's both both variations of it There's and both flavours of it. So we have the normal critical care and then we have the fine grind critical care, which, as it says on the box, is a finer version of it. And that one we tend not to use too much in-house. It's more for clients who struggle to, you know, make it up to the correct consistency to administer to their pets at home the fine grind and and, um, and it clogs up in the syringe and there's the, the standard sort of um, variation and then there's the aniseed flavor mark do you find any particular rabbits or, or guinea pigs have a preference for for one or the other mark in in your practice we generally do find the the normal flavor is the the predominantly preferred one and we generally find that easier to get into both rabbits and guinea pigs but there definitely is some um, who turn up their nose literally so that you can't get it into their mouth Um, and we switch between flavors and the aniseed one and the um, banana and apple, I think, is yeah, the other yeah. one, yes. Um, um, but definitely the... the but it is interesting, I must have, and, and it's hard, obviously hard to pick, in, in my experience anyway, which which you know, rabbit or guinea pig would prefer, the aniseed or the, or the banana um, and apple one, but some of them do have pretty strong preferences there. And I, when, when I'm explaining to clients when we're dispensing it for, for going home, if we have an animal that's had gut stasis, for instance, we do we do go over the whole process about um, you know that your your rabbit or guinea pig may or may not struggle with this um, and I generally say look most most um, moderate moderate number of the rabbits or guinea pigs will actively take the critical care and seem to enjoy it probably the majority of them tolerate it when when you're giving it to them and and uh, a smaller minority really hate it um yes. so uh and we all like i think one of the tips is when you are explaining this process to the clients and if they have to use these sort of products whether it's critical care from oxbow or it's whether it's one of the other competing products or similar products it's important i think to make sure that the client is in the room and they the, the nurse demonstrates in front of the client with their pet how to administer the product because not only it's the whole process of you know what consistency do you do make the solution or the, or the product up to and it does vary a little bit based on what's on the back you know it, it, it gives you a rough guide on the back of the pack there about how much water to add to it but sometimes we make it a little bit thinner than that um, and also the type of syringe you use as well mark um, so we you suggest particular feeding syringes that we usually dispense and you know they charge we charge out for two dollars or something like that um that has a thicker bore especially at the tip there so it makes it a hell of a lot easier to administer the product and then demonstrating the burrito technique if you do have to wrap up the small mammal in order to dispense the food into their mouth mark and um, take your time and there's there's a good little handout from from oxbow um, that details the whole it's a one page or a two page little handout that explains how to approach that that feeding your animal with the critical care and i think one of the first comments is stop take a breath breathe um, relax <laughs> as you're doing it so yes so that's that's a little bit of a long-winded introduction to you know the, the process of 
making sure that the the compliance is there with, with the client and the and the patient there, Mark. But the answer is um, primarily the Oxbow Critical Care is the emergency food we use in a lot of these small mammals. Um, we may we mix try, it. Go we, on, go sorry. On. We may mix it depending on what other small mammal, obviously, that we have there. For instance, if we have a ferret, then we have a, a strict carnivore, then, then we're trying to reach for other products such as our uh, recovery diets, our Royal Canaan recovery is the one we tend to dispense and the, the Hills Science diet or the Hills AD uh, diet. So those diets made for dogs or cats recovering from intestinal surgery, etc. those high-calorific diets that are easy to digest, uh, that's what I'd be suggesting for something like a... Okay, ferret, and sometimes we mix and match. What do you use, Mark? Um, with the ferrets, well, well with the rabbits and, the and guinea pigs, the yes. same critical care with ferrets. We uh, love those um, recovery diets from many of the, you know, the ones that are applicable to cats and dogs we will use with ferrets. They, being wet, they, um, you know, they're not a long-term solution. Um, they will get because they're relatively high in energy with oils, they definitely help with uh, recovery. Um, and ferrets are another one where we really want to, they are so fastidious and um, have their favourite foods, their preferences. We really work hard to get uh, the clients to bring in maybe um, something that the ferret's been eating at home and, and uh, if we've got a tube, feed them, then yeah, definitely the AD type, um, Hills AD type recovery diets from any of the manufacturers, that style of thing um, works well for us. Excellent. And there are a couple of other brands there, Mark, including, uh, well, here in Australia, there's, there's an Australian brand that's may not be available readily overseas. I think Veta Farm um, company makes a few um, pelleted sort of products that you can um, offer as a post-operative food. Um, it's a little bit tricky to use it as a critical care sort of um, variation there. And and I think um, there's a few in the States and there's also... Well, the other, the other one that's sometimes used, and I'd be interested to see whether you... Um, Use these as well, Mark. Um, and I know they've been around for forever. Is the divetilact type product? So the you know the low lactose animal milk sort of substitute generic food. Um, do do you ever have that in stock or or use that at a pinch if you haven't got any? So, so what? Um, the divetilact is a uh, low milk. lactose milk yes. replacer. Yes. Yes. Um, and. Uh, we probably the the one that we um, we probably don't use Divetilact too often. It's a good generic one, but um, we're we're much more um, keen to use ones that are you know it's the same principle, Brendan, as we use with um with uh, with the foods that we recommend people use at home. If there is a um, a specific one that's available, um, then using that one. And I know Wombaroo and even Vetafarm have a number of specific foods, species-focused foods, um, that nuance that comes from having the milk replacer for that species or the the um, uh, recovery food for that species does make a difference. So um, we've sort of gone off Divetilact a little bit because of its generic nature. Um, yes, and, and that's... At, uh, I, I, <laughs> 
I was subtly trying to hint towards that, yes, and then it's a generic <laughs> one that's involved as a milk, milk replacement for for a huge range of species, and because of that, it's not not it's not focused enough um, compared yes. to some of the uh, milk replacers that we do have for for more specific mammals. Um, so for, here in Australia, for instance, we have you know specific milk replacers for all sorts. We have um, well, we do have a, a, a guinea pig milk replacer. There's a rabbit one. There's, I think they even make ones for um, bats and yes. some other zoo animals as well. As far as particular, um, you know, specific um, replacement. But yes, and so, so sometimes, even though it's a little bit, a tiny bit off topic, as far as it's not a complete food using as an emergency um, for these animals, we sometimes have to reach for the milk replacers um, for and it's as a good, an emergency food, Mark. Um, and there's a, a huge range of, sorry, um, of, of possum and kangaroo milk replacers and wombat and koala and echidna. I think they're making echidna milk as well or milk replacer. So they have some excellent products. And that's for a company here in Australia. So a lot of our overseas listeners wouldn't um, know of called Wombaroo, W-O-M-B-R. B A R O Wombaru. Yes, it's a good um uh, the the probably the corollary of you know I would always try and use those specific uh, products use um, our Wombaru products if in Australia, but many practices won't have the you know the echidna formulation on hand and just to practitioners I would always say that if you um if get work with fluids. Um, and energy-rich fluids, whether it's the um, uh, uh, rehydrating fluids that have extra sugar or um, uh, that's... It, I know lots of people panic about getting those specific ones and they don't focus on keeping the animal hydrated. So um, uh, if you've got the specific milk or um, then definitely use that. But it segues nicely into birds, Brendan, because I think in birds we can take advantage of the foods that are given to um, to neonates, the, the hand-rearing mixes that are commonly available, um, and use those generically across the granivorous birds um, so that we don't have to necessarily hold five or six different... Yes. Um, recovery foods there are a number of specialized recovery foods and those practices that have lots of um, uh, bird work should look into um, as you mentioned before the vetifarm product the wombaroo make a, um, a, a, a recovery diet um, and uh, there's a number of other ones on the market in Australia at the moment um, and um, but certainly in a pinch you can use those hand rearing mixes um, that are probably more uh, easy to store better to um, uh, have on the shelf for um, for that generic purpose absolutely um, and, so and, they're, and they're very affordable too aren't they that they're, they're not expensive um, for those little I think they're like 250 gram packs and they're used by date maybe a year or something like that so that it's 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 very affordable to have a few of all of each of these types of mixes for example for the bird ones are granivore rearing mixes as you mentioned those hand rearing foods etc and doing the same for the for the rabbits and the guinea pigs with the critical care and and you're not spending a fortune so it, it, the good news is you can 
it's not going to be hard to convince the boss um, in order to have a, a little supply of, of emergency foods for the mammals and the birds and the reptiles, which we'll get to shortly. Um, and it does make a big difference to the outcomes. You were highlighting before, it's the the rule of the practice that um, nothing goes home until it eats, but that's a good rule to have because it does beget more positive outcomes. If the... If the um, the animal's in positive energy balance and its gut is working well, it's going to recover more quickly and have less chance of complication. So um, because it's relatively inexpensive, a relatively inexpensive part of the treatment but improves outcomes, it's definitely worth having a few of those on the shelf. Yes, and speaking of reptiles, we have exactly the same sort of products there and I think you probably reach for the similar ones that we have here and that's uh, that same company, that one brew company produce a reptile supplement, although that one's a little bit gritty so it can be a bit of a challenge to have it mixed up so it's a, a syringable sort of product there, Mark. Um, and we're often chopping and changing or, or mixing maybe perhaps a little bit of that with one of the Hills AD um, diet or the recovery diets and sometimes yes. sometimes even the recovery diet mixed with, depending on the species of reptile yes. obviously, with the Oxbow um, critical care as well. So it might be a bit of Oxbow critical care with one of the recovery diets and that, for example, would work as a good supplement or an emergency food for a commonly kept lizard like a bearded dragon is what I'd be using that for now. And it is a little bit more difficult with reptiles because there's fewer, um, you know, species-specific uh, foods available, um, particularly recovery foods. And so you do have to do exactly as you said, be uh, aware of their normal diet, select uh the generic carnivorous or herbivorous food that is most likely to provide um, nutrients and energy for recovery um, and use those ones. And just like you, we, we take advantage of the, the carnivore, the dog and cat recovery diets adapted um, maybe with some supplemental um, uh, vegetable matter of one form or another for each of the species depending on, like you said, bearded dragons we know they're going to take some vegetables in and and so mixing them up is um is it mixing them up uh and um getting that mix in is an excellent way to speed their recovery and the good news with the reptiles is that it's not as critical as far as feeding times or, or, or um, frequencies with them. Uh, for instance, if we have a snake in the clinic there, Mark, the chances are that we don't need to give it an emergency food while it's in the clinic, <laughs> even if it's in for several days, because that snake typically would only be fed once every four to six weeks or so, so we, we don't have to worry about it, as opposed to you in your clinic, Mark, and you have some of these really high metabolic little birds that need feeding very frequently. Um, do you want to give a couple of tips? This, this is sort of <laughs> off topic about how often and, and do you feed some of these um, birds that have that such high metabolic rate and what's the process of ensuring that they are fed regularly? How do you, how do you, um, how do you balance that? How do you have, do you have a little chart? How do you, how do you make sure that that bird, does get its feed when it's in the clinic? It's a good, very good question, Brendan. And and I think it highlights that there's a couple of quick points to make about it. The first one is that 
particularly if you're talking about, um, I don't know, maybe a, let's let's talk about a, um, a, a captive species, a aviculturist is breeding. Um, you know, we've had aviculturists who look after soft build, the so-called soft build birds, and so they might be looking after um, wrens or kingfishers, and those birds are high metabolic. Uh, little buzz boxes. Some of the wrens only weigh in at um, between 8 and 16 grams um, and they do need a fairly continuous supply. And so being aware of that um, and making sure that you uh, have the time to get in there, sometimes every 20 minutes we're talking about, Brendan. And the corollary of that is that making sure that, uh, that you have a good relationship you know, if you've got a hand rearer, someone who's breeding something like that and they're hand rearing one of the parrots or one of the soft bills, you, you do want to probably get them out and back into the circumstance where those people can commit the time because it's very difficult in a veterinary hospital to do that. Um, but yeah, for some of those species, it's um, every 15 or 20 minutes. Which is pretty damn often, isn't it, Mark? So... Are there any other species that, well, what about emergency foods for amphibians, Mark? Do you ever have to do that? The good thing about most of the amphibians, so we'd be, most of the amphibians we see here in Australia are going to be frogs and um, maybe axolotls. Um, And they're all, uh, um, you know, insectivorous. They're all going to be, um, and so we would, routinely be using soft rubber tubes and the interesting thing gavaging most of our amphibians is they have a relatively wide muscular esophagus so they close off their stomach but it's relatively short so you don't have to poke your tube down too far to get it into the stomach um, and then just using one of the carnivore recovery diets is uh, is a pretty good way to go for amphibians Brendan um, the other thing I was oh I was thinking um, you mentioned about reptiles, um, making sure that we um, don't have to feed uh, the snakes and, um, and making sure that we uh, um, feed each species at the appropriate um, sort of frequency, very frequently for some of those little birds. Um, but yeah, I think it is really important just to be aware um, uh, of some of those big snakes. They don't need to be fed um, very, very often at all. Excellent. I was going to make another comment, but I've lost it. Um, I've gone blank, Mark. And I think in deference to having a bit of a punchy episode, uh, I will not try and recall it, Mark. So any other final comments before we get out of here? And I think we'll cover some of the commercial foods and the do's and don'ts of recommending them to clients to feed to their pets at another stage i suppose the only other comment i would have is and i mentioned it with the rabbits there is if 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 it's a product an emergency food of any kind that needs to be then fed to the patient at home i think it's essential that you demonstrate that to the client at discharge um otherwise we're going to run into trouble i do think because um a lot of the time that gavage is not something that the clients will be familiar with um uh, they can we definitely have had times where um even with experienced um 
bird breeders. Um, we assume that they know what they're doing and then we end up with an aspiration pneumonia because they're unfamiliar with it and uh, feed too much or, um, uh, yeah. So I think, um, uh, as you said, making sure that people take it nice and slow, that they've had a demonstration from one of the nurses who knows what they're doing, that they don't do it if they're worried and they get back in touch with the hospital. They're good, um, pretty, it doesn't matter how good the food is, if it goes down the wrong way, it's going to cause a problem. Yep. I agree. Let's get out of here and we will talk to you all next week. Don't forget to visit the website vetgurus.com. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.